I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS, and this is another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's an honor and a privilege to have the First Lady of Afghanistan with me, uh, Mrs. Rula Ghani. Uh, Mrs. Ghani has been First Lady. How long have you been First Lady now of Afghanistan? I've just completed three years. Oh, my word. And are you from Afghanistan originally? No, originally I'm from Lebanon, where I met my husband when he came to study at the American University of Beirut. And uh, it's been now almost 44 years we're married. It's amazing. Did you expect when you met your husband that you were going to be First Lady of Afghanistan? No, he was very involved in academic pursuit, and I thought he would become a professor. And uh, that's what I was uh, getting ready for, to become the wife of a professor. You have been, in your time as First Lady of mm -hmm. Afghanistan, a strong advocate for women. And... We just hosted a public event for you here at CSIS. Could you talk about the role of women in the economy of Afghanistan? I think uh, um, women always have a role in the economy, wherever, wh whatever country and wherever in the world, uh, because uh, women are the ones who keep uh, a family together. The women are the ones who are working to... Uh, keep a house clean, to put uh, the food on the table, to uh, make sure that the children are dressed and are doing whatever activities they're supposed to do, like going to school or doing other things. Uh, women are really uh, very important to society. Unfortunately, uh, their activity at home is never monetized, and for that reason, it's often uh, dismissed. So when I've started looking at women in Afghanistan, I never considered them that they were not taking part or that they were not an important part of Afghan society. But what it is is that after four decades of war, women had lost uh, the respect of their fellow citizens. And uh, one thing that I've been striving is to kind of... Um, point out to the fact that they are really um, helping out in so many different fields, whether at home or those who can work outside are uh, really contributing to society and that they should be respected. It is their due. I was quite struck by the video that we showed. There's a new Afghan Women's Chamber of Commerce. Yes. Talk about that video. Well, this is a group of young women. I think most of the members are between 25 and 35 years old. Women who have risked their savings and decided to start a business. And they are themselves the owners of their business and the managers of their business. It's so uh, we're talking about small and medium enterprises. We're not talking about something very huge, but it's really already a very important step forward. They were first a support group, and they were called LEAD. And they'd come to visit me, and I'd seen them a couple of times. And one day they mentioned that it would be so much easier for them if they were part of the Chamber of Commerce, but they were having trouble joining the existing Chamber of Commerce. And I said, why don't you do a Chamber of Commerce for women? And... Uh, they said, well, we tried once, it didn't work. I said, well, try a second time and let's see, maybe this time it will work. And they did. And it worked. 
And so now they've been, I think it was in March, they got the approval of the High Commission for Economics. And uh, they are very determined to make it work, and they're hard uh, uh, at work trying to figure out what are the things they want to push first for. There were a number of scenes in the video, one of which was a number of women in hard hats. Yes. Talk about that. The women in hard hats were, uh, there were maybe like 10 or 12 women in that picture, uh, were uh, engineers working on a site. I recognize the site. It's the site of a palace that's called uh, the uh, Darlaman Palace that has been uh, destroyed during the years of civil war. And uh, um, it's a beautiful palace, and it really will be worth uh, repairing and uh, bringing Bringing back, bringing it back to life, and uh, these women are um, are part of the team of engineers that is doing just that. Uh, what is interesting to know is that uh, they are not just um, worker you know, engineers. They're not worker just... engineers. Actually, two or three of them had um, different. You know, the engineers are divided in several groups. Some of them do the. Uh, structural engineer, others do the electricity, the third ones are doing uh, uh, maybe the plumbing. And I know for, for a fact that uh, there are uh, two or three women that are head of these groups. So they have man engineer working under their supervision. Tell a story about um, 15 years ago when we were talking uh, outside mm-hmm. at, at the public event, the that the sea change in the society in Afghanistan, my understanding is that there were no women in school in the year 2000. There was literally zero girls in school under the Taliban. Now, we had a discussion about the numbers, whether it's, I've seen numbers as high as 3.6 million. Whatever the number is, it's a really large number, and it's in the millions in terms of the number of women who are in school. Mm -hmm. Because there have been so many women over 10 or 15 years in school, that's had all sorts of implications for the society. It's had changes in the society. Mm -hmm. Share some of the radical changes, positive changes that have happened because of that fact. Uh, Yes, indeed. The country went through four decades of conflicts and civil wars and different regime. And at the end of uh, those four decades, the five last years were under the Taliban. And when they came, they decided that girls should not go to school. So, uh, yes. uh, It's crazy. It was was unfortunate. But to show the resilience of women, a lot of women at home uh, created schools, underground schools, for those children and taught them how to read and write and whatever other knowledge they could share with them. So when in 2001 the Taliban were no longer there, the schools reopened. And girls started going back to school. And as you said, um, it's a large number that goes probably larger within the urban centers than in the provinces. And what it, what it is is that right now we have quite a few young women who are educated. I have uh, this friend who uh, was interviewing a young woman for a uh, training program, and uh, she showed me this picture where she's standing and looking at a hall where there are 600 young women sitting at tables waiting to take the exam that will decide whether or not they'll be able to join that training. It's like taking the SAT. Exactly. Like taking the American SAT, the entrance exam yeah, into university. Probably they wanted to check whether they, they knew certain elements that they needed to 
have to be able to take the training. And um, she told me, you know, when I came back in 2001, because she had, uh, she had been living in the States during that time, when I came back in 2001, I looked everywhere to get a 12th grader to act as my 12th grader woman or young girl uh, to act as my secretary. And I couldn't find anyone. And now here I was standing, and there were 600 women who had earned that bar- their bachelors were sitting in front of me. And I thought, my God, we have really covered a lot of ground. It's incredible. Share the story of the two young women going to medical school. Yes. So there is this, um, this problem that uh, we don't have enough women who are trained as med- medical doctors or as teachers in some of the more conservative provinces. And it becomes a vicious circle. We need, we need to train them so that they can then train other girls from that province. But what is really very interesting is that although we still have to grapple to this problem, we are finding out that there are increasingly an inclination among the male member of the family, the father, the brother, the grandfather, in pushing the girls to get an education. And this particular man who called my office and had said, I'd like like to introduce to you my two daughters, I said, okay, sure, why not? He came from Khos, which is a province that is known for being uh, somewhat conservative. And when the girls came, they were dressed very conservatively. But he was so proud to tell me. They're both in their first year of uh, medical school. And then he proceeded to let me know that uh, when he was younger, probably in his late teens or early 20s, uh, he had witnessed in his family the death of a woman in child labor. And That had happened because there was no female doctor to attend to her. There was a male doctor, but the tradition said that he uh, he could not administer anything to her. So uh, he had promised himself that when he would grow uh, grow up and have uh, children, he will have his two his daughters. He will have every one of his daughters become a doctor and come back and take care of their. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. I asked you out there if you're optimistic about the future of Afghanistan. Are you optimistic about the future of Afghanistan? I'm very optimistic. There is a rising generation of young people that are very dedicated, that are determined to make something of their country. Of course, there are a a small proportion, a, a little percentage that want to leave the country and try their fortune elsewhere. And this happens in all countries at that age. You want to go and see the world and see if it's better elsewhere. But there is a good number, a critical mass of young people who are uh, being very resourceful and trying with very little resources to make things happen within their environment, whether it's the university, whether if they're working, their uh, workplace, uh, they give me a lot of hope and a lot of energy because when I see them, you know, our country is 70% of our population is under 25. So our country soon will be run by these young people. And it's very heartening to see that there are among them, some of them that are already taking leadership positions. So Thanksgiving in the United States is coming. Mm-hmm. And when I sit around the Thanksgiving table, I'm 
I have many family members who are very reasonable people um, who will ask, why should the United States remain involved in Afghanistan? What would, if you were at Thanksgiving at my Thanksgiving table, what would your answer be to my family members who ask that question? Uh, first of all, I will tell them how lucky they are to live in a country where they have such a sense of security and such a sense of uh, prosperity, access to whatever they want. This is not the case all over the world. Also, they need to understand that they are part of the world. The world has become very global, and something that happens very far away may have repercussions on their world here. And they need to be aware of that so that uh, they can prevent uh, hard feelings and uh, prevent, uh, how shall I say, uh, prevent uh, bad developments in the other countries to come and have a repercussion on their own country. This country, America, did have a very big shock with 9-11. Fortunately, it was the only shock. But it took time to recover. It took time to heal the wounds. It took time to kind of uh, uh, get back that feeling of security. Unfortunately, in Europe, it's no longer the case. You have events happening all the time, every month, every two months. One corner of Europe is being shaken by a very horrible event. Probably it would be very helpful if the younger generation of Americans understands what is happening in the rest of the world and help other countries in the world become strong and prosperous so that there are not a breeding ground for people who will come anywhere in the world and create havoc and their, their own world might be disrupted. Uh, Your Excellency, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. It was wonderful. I hope you'll come back to CSIS. Thank you very much. I would love to come back. Good. Thank you.